Welcome to The Making of the Islamic World. I'm Chris Grayton. The Making of the Islamic World is a series of podcasts intended for the university classroom. With each episode, we provide a bibliography of readings associated with the topic, as well as other readings and activities great for group discussion or for simply exploring on your own. In the previous installment, we were in Iberia, which for centuries was the site of encounters between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. In this episode, we're exploring another form of cross-confessional encounter, the Crusades. I should start out by warning the listener that this episode contains more sex and violence than any of our other episodes. Though a crusade is a holy war, the picture of the Crusades that emerges from the Islamic world is that of a down-and-dirty affair. And this episode will be unique within our series in another way. Most of the episodes in this series cover events that seldom figure in pop culture representations of history. But that's not true with the Crusades. They pop up in blockbuster films, video games, and best-selling novels in the United States. Here's a little clip of audio from an early example of the Crusades in our pop culture, the 1935 Hollywood film entitled The Crusades. A sharp blade, my lord Sultan, but Christian armor is not made of silk. Just as easily will I cut your crusade to pieces unless you accept my terms. From you, Sultan of Islam, I accept only war. My lords? My answer is war. No terms. War. War. God and the cross. Very well, my lords. War. Within a month, I shall enter Jerusalem. By Allah, you shall never pass the gates of Jerusalem. The label of Crusades is an umbrella term for wars of the medieval period that pitted European Christians against non-Christians, or sometimes Christians that they did not consider real Christians. The most iconic Crusader wars took place in the Eastern Mediterranean, where Crusader armies established small principalities in the Levant, one centered on the city of Edessa and one on Antioch, both in southern Turkey today, as well as one in Tripoli of modern-day Lebanon. Later, the Crusaders also formed a kingdom on the island of Cyprus. The most important Crusader state was centered on the city of Jerusalem, which the Crusader armies held for almost a century. Prior to the Crusades, those regions had been under Muslim rule since the 7th century, and after the final defeat of the Crusaders during the 13th century, they would remain under Muslim rule until the 20th century. Which begs the question, what did all this really mean for the Islamic world? Here's UVA professor Josh White. How important are the Crusades? And it's a question that you can't answer with very or not at all. It's rather more complicated. Obviously, if you lived anywhere where the Crusades showed up, at least initially, this is an absolute catastrophe. If you lived in Antioch, you died. Uh, if you lived in Jerusalem, you died. If you owned anything around there, you probably didn't anymore. Utterly catastrophic on the local level. For people who are further to field, this is of rather less importance. Um, the Crusaders didn't conquer any truly major important cities. They never took Damascus. They didn't take Aleppo. They didn't take Cairo. Um, Jerusalem is a place of symbolic importance, but it hadn't been important commercially for certainly not since the Romans. So in that regard, for somebody who lived in Baghdad or Cairo, what changed for you? Nothing, really. There were quite a few authors during the period of the Crusades who wrote about them in Arabic. And their writings give us a window onto how the Crusades appeared from the other side of the coin. Some of the most fascinating depictions come from Usama ibn Munqidh, 
a Muslim writer, diplomat, and knight who served in a number of courts of the Muslim dynasties that still controlled most of the Levant throughout the Crusader period. Ibn Munqad's accounts are particularly valuable because he actually seems to have interacted quite a bit with the Crusaders, and they were an eclectic mix of individuals. Over Ibn Munqad's 93-year life, Western Europeans, or Franks, went from being all but non-existent in the region to comprising a new element of local life. But there were also always fresh waves of puzzling foreigners washing up in the Levant during the 12th and 13th centuries. Here's Mariam Patton's reading of Ibn Munqid recalling an encounter between a local doctor and a Frankish doctor. The ruler of Munaitara wrote to my uncle, asking him to send a doctor to treat some of his followers who were ill. My uncle sent a Christian called Thabit. After only ten days, he returned, and we said, You cured them quickly. This was his story. They took me to see a knight who had an abscess on his leg and a woman with consumption. I applied a poultice to the leg, and the abscess opened and began to heal. I prescribed a cleansing and refreshing diet for the woman. Then there appeared a Frankish doctor, who said, This man has no idea how to cure these people. He turned to the knight and said, Which would you prefer, to live with one leg or die with two? When the knight replied that he would prefer to live with one leg, he sent for a strong man and a sharp axe. They arrived, and I stood by to watch. The doctor supported the leg on a block of wood and said to the man, Strike a mighty blow and cut cleanly. And there, before my eyes, the fellow struck the knight one blow, and then another, for the first had not finished the job. The marrow spurted out of the leg, and the patient died instantaneously. Then the doctor examined the woman and said, She has a devil in her head who is in love with her. Cut her hair off. This was done, and she went back to eating her usual Frankish food, garlic and mustard, which made her illness worse. The devil has gotten to her brain, pronounced the doctor. He took a razor and cut a cross on her head and removed the brain so that the inside of the skull was laid bare. This he rubbed with salt. The woman died instantly. At this juncture I asked whether they had any further need of me, and as they had none, I came away having learned things about medical methods that I never knew before. It's very clear from the Muslim accounts of the period that the Crusaders, though journeying from afar, were not seen as particularly worldly or cultured people. Here's another memorable encounter narrated by Ibn Munqidh. Anyone who recently arrived from the Frankish lands is rougher in character than those who have become acclimated and have frequented the company of Muslims. Here is an instance of their rough character. May God abominate them. Whenever I went to visit the holy sites in Jerusalem, I would go in and make my way up to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, beside which stood a small mosque that the Franks had converted into a church. When I went into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, where the Templars, who are my friends, were, they would clear out that little mosque so that I could pray in it. One day, I went into the little mosque, recited the opening formula, God is great, and stood up in prayer. At this, one of the Franks rushed at me and grabbed me and turned my face towards the east, saying, pray like this. A group of Templars hurried towards him, took hold of the Frank, and took him away from me. They apologized to me, saying, This man is a stranger, just arrived from the Frankish land sometime in the past few days. He has never before seen anyone who did not pray towards the east. I think I've prayed quite enough, I said, and left. I used to marvel at that devil, 
the change of his expression, the way he trembled, and what he must have made of seeing someone praying towards Mecca. The context here is that for Christian Europe, east was the preferred direction of prayer. In fact, as a side note, east, rather than north, was often at the top of pre-modern European maps. If you think about a word like orientation, which we use to describe the layout of a map, or really putting things in the right direction in many senses, it comes from the word east. And if the east loomed large in the medieval European cosmology, the accounts we have suggest that the arriving crusaders had very little knowledge about the people they crossed the Mediterranean to wage war against. But with time, there was acclamation and integration into the local political fabric. For the centuries they existed, the crusader states could best be seen as a few more little states on a very fragmentary but dynamic political map of the Islamic world. You still had a Muslim majority population, you still had plenty of other folks. What they did was just reversed, but maintained what the local administration had done before. So, for example, under Muslim rule, the Christians and the Jews pay the jizya tax. All right, well, now the Muslims pay the jizya tax and the Jews. They even call it the same thing. They did that in Sicily. They did that in parts of Iberia. They will do that in these territories as well. They will enter into alliances, maintain open borders in many instances. And so fairly quickly, things become not normal, mind you, but just another set of weird people, all foreign for the locals, Right, because we're dealing with people who are being ruled over by you know the descendants of Turkic slave soldiers and what have you. Nobody in this region has been ruled by anybody from their their territory in a while. They're all outsiders, all relying on outsiders for military support. So, if they now wear different colored armor and speak another language they don't understand, does it really matter? Maybe. Certainly, it will come to and uh, the Ayyubids. Under, under Salahuddin, as, as he begins to mobilize support for one consolidated authority in, in these territories that haven't divided for a long time under him, a lot of propaganda over, let's kick these assholes out. But up to that point, you know, it was nobody's favorite priority. I mean, much, it was much more important to fight the local dude in Mosul than it was to go mess around with the Crusaders of Tripoli. It just didn't matter that much. So how did it all get started? First Crusade begins uh, with Urban II's call at Clermont in 1095 for, not exclusively a crusade, because that word didn't exist yet, but for an armed pilgrimage to retake Jerusalem. So that's where it begins. But that's not really where it begins. It begins actually more fairly, I'd say, in Iberia and in Sicily. And it begins in Anatolia, too. So if we're going to go way back, we can consider a number of things that have been taking place in the decades and centuries before that. Sicily is invaded in the mid-9th century from what is now Tunisia, and over the succeeding decades is, is reduced and ultimately completely conquered, and is then a territory ruled initially from North Africa, you know, a place that becomes and already was incredibly diverse. Maybe we're inclined to think of Sicily as being a place where people speak Italian, but this is, in fact, a territory that was ruled by the Byzantines, where Greek was the dominant language and where Orthodox Christianity was the dominant religion. 
and a space that then becomes over the succeeding century or so a place that is to a large degree Arabic speaking um, but one that is mixed between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. And that remains the case for quite some time, even as unity remains uh, problematic. And in time, uh, unity in Sicily breaks down and becomes a bunch of mini-states. And at that moment, they start to look for help from abroad and find it in dubious places. The same thing happens, as we've already discussed elsewhere, in Iberia, where two Centralized power lasts only so long. Another space that is diverse in terms of religion and culture, and where the Christian kingdoms in the north begin to push south in earnest in the 11th century. Right. So these things end up happening at both the same time. In the case of Sicily, this begins um, with Norman adventurers, the same guys, or at least their cousins, who cross the English Channel and take control of England in 1066 around the same time after decades of service as mercenaries in southern Italy, have at that point mostly taken control of the southern half of the peninsula, they are invaded by one of the various claimants to power amongst the emirs in Sicily to help. And that help turns into a full-scale invasion, which is complete uh, by around 1090. So at that point, Sicily becomes a Norman territory, later a kingdom, one in which now we have Latin Christians, Orthodox Christians, Jews, and Muslims, one in which Arabic remains one of the dominant languages of administration, but nevertheless a place that is under the rule of Latin Christians. And this is a moment, too, where the popes find themselves increasingly under the control of Norman Christian potentates in southern Italy. The same thing begins to have some success in Iberia simultaneously. Toledo falls and the hits keep coming after that. Then there's a period of reversal, but nevertheless, we see Christian rule expanding and the Muslims divided in Iberia. So any political observer with enough knowledge, enough sources of information, would know at this moment that Muslims are on the defensive in Iberia. They're on the defensive in Sicily. They're divided. They've been conquered there successfully by people who have sought papal dispensations, sought papal approval, sought the promise of redemption of their sins should they participate in an armed pilgrimage to liberate these places from the Muslims. So an observer who then was receiving news from the East would hear a couple different things. One cries for help from the Byzantine Emperor Alexius II, who is at this moment facing, as I've mentioned before, Serious demographic challenges in Anatolia. Now, what does he want? He wants money, and he wants mercenaries. He's not asking for an armed pilgrimage, thank you very much. But that's what he's asking for. And if somebody looked a little bit further, past Alexius to the south, they would notice that the face-off between the Seljuks and the Fatimids had devolved into a stalemate, and that Seljuk entropy had now created a constellation of mini-states ruled by various folks of uncertain background who were supposedly looking out for the interests of this or that princeling who might disappear um, into a closet or an early grave at one point or another and yada yada yada. So the moment is ripe. That's what we're looking at kind of at the dawn of the Crusades. So Pope Urban II answers this call by calling for this armed pilgrimage and at least initially, right, the, the first guys who go out there are 
the second, third, and fourth sons of, of the lesser aristocracy, right? No kings are involved in this project, but people set aside some money and, and say, go for it, why not? So we got a bunch of adventurers, people who are never going to inherit daddy's land or daddy's title, but have at least received really high-quality military training. People who are bloodthirsty and bored are getting a bunch of those. So who comes along? The Normans. The same folks who brought you Norman England and Norman Sicily are now looking for opportunities uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean because they're not going to find them at Daddy's court. So the first wave of people show up. These are the kind of People's Crusade. This thing is a complete mess. The Celtics utterly slaughter them the minute they show up. The second wave, though, includes much, many more professional soldiers, and they put the Seljuks who encounter them after they get, after these guys pass through Constantinople, uh, they put them um, to flight. Nicaea, which had been briefly occupied by the Seljuks at this point for maybe 15 years, is liberated, and then they march south. Now, the deal that had been made with the Crusaders when they showed up, the deal they made with Alexius, was that Alexius would get all the stuff they conquered, and they would get to keep the goodies that they stole. They renege on this immediately. Now, the very first territories that they ultimately conquer are, in fact, ones where they are fighting mostly Christians. They overthrow, you know, the Armenians at Edessa. This is Christian rule. It becomes the very first crusader state. So the crusaders will themselves never be truly united on the ground in greater Syria. It just never happens. So Edessa falls first. Um, and then Antioch is invested. This is a very long siege. It stretches from October of 1097 to June of 1098. It is an ugly, ugly affair. People are catapulting heads on, from one side of the, the, the walls to another. It's just nasty, nasty, nasty. Eventually, the city's betrayed and wholesale slaughter and destruction in a city that has a very large Christian population. The Crusaders do not discriminate between their victims. They kill everybody. The same thing will happen when Jerusalem finally falls in 1099. The destruction is epic. Wholesale massacre of Muslims, Christians, and Jews, especially Jews in the city. Uh, the Muslim historiographers all mention how the Jews of Jerusalem were collected, or perhaps they had taken refuge in uh, the synagogues and were, were burned inside them. So it's a truly horrific affair, which really is in strong contrast to much of the traditional warfare in the area. What the Crusaders do, being that they are second, third, fourth sons, what have you, of, of European nobilities, to try to kind of reconstruct the same sort of feudal structures of Western Europe locally. So we have four states, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the County of Edessa, the Principality of Antioch, and the County of Tripoli. And those last two will last the longest until the later 13th. The first two um, will last far less. There are, of course, further expansionist aims here. The people who provide much of the money for these later expeditions and who will have the most to gain from them are the Italian city-states, who had already enjoyed good trade relationships at this point with the Fatimids, uh, but see certainly opportunities to cut out some of the middlemen. Um, and so these folks will take a great deal of interest in uh, the conquest and expansion of port facilities all along the Syrian coast. This way they can compete against both the Byzantines and the Fatimids and, and really kind of make some money here. The Crusader states emerged in a bit of a power vacuum for the Islamic world. The Fatimids had gone from being rulers of an empire with territory on three continents to being largely confined to Egypt by the end of the 11th century, and they would not survive the 12th. Around that same time, we saw the rise of an Ismaili offshoot state based in northern Iran, 
They were known to their enemies as the Assassins, and in fact, this name gave English the word Assassin, as they were associated with the murder of many prominent figures in the Sunni dynasties of the period. Nizam al-Mulk, the Abbasid vizier we talked about in episode 3 of this series, is one such person possibly killed by the Assassins from their base in the Alamut castle. In a world where a functioning army was enough to carve out a small polity, the Crusader states survived for a while with regular reinforcement from Europe, existing in a state of frequent warfare with both Muslim rulers and each other for almost a century. Then a turning point came with the rise of the Ayyubid dynasty at the end of the 12th century. Here's CUNY professor Zoe Griffith. So the Ayyubids... They take their name from this kind of paternal forefather of the figure of Salahuddin Saladin, who is, you know, the founder of the dynasty and overwhelmingly its most famous and important figure. But it's, you know, uh, Salahuddin ibn Ayyub, and the dynasty is named for his for his father, so the Ayyubids. Saladin, Salahuddin, is from a Kurdish family and is raised in a military dynasty. Um, His uncles and uh, other male relatives were mercenaries of various powers in the region at this time. And so Salahuddin is sent to Egypt originally in 1164 uh, under the orders of Nuruddin Zengi, who is uh, a ruler in Syria at this time. And, you know, he arrives a young man, Sunni Muslim, but he is such a kind of astute politician and a very good military man. And he's actually appointed to the position of vizier by the Fatimid caliph. So the Fatimids, this uh, Shiite dynasty, rulers of Cairo, are not very powerful by the time we get to the uh, 1160s. And I think the caliph at that time is a is an 18 year old boy you know young man essentially um and he appoints saladin to the position of vizier it's very rare for a sunni to be put in that position but he ultimately or within a couple of years of his appointment goes on to abolish the fatimids altogether in 1171 so this is you know they kind of go out with a sputter the uh the fatimids and the city of Cairo and the province of Egypt are in a way restored to uh, Sunni rule, which had been kind of the norm before uh, 969 and are going to, it's going to remain, you know, a kind of unchallenged precedent after 1171. So this is a kind of realignment with the Abbasids, but uh, Salahuddin retains a lot of autonomy as the founder of this Ayyubid dynasty. And once he consolidates power in Egypt, uh, he still has to kind of, (laughs) like, he came to power on the strength of his affiliation with his uncle um, and, like, other members of this, like, Zengid dynasty. Now he has to really assert himself as, you know, autonomous or, like, the most powerful autonomous ruler in the region. And he is successful in that endeavor and this puts him in a position once he consolidates power in Egypt uh, and Syria to turn his attention to 
um, the Crusaders and the Christian presence in the Holy Land, specifically in Jerusalem, um, that has been in place since the end of the 11th century. Salah al-Din al-Ayyubi, or Saladin, was able to achieve something that the Crusader states never did, political unity. And under his rule, Muslim armies went on the offensive against the Crusaders. Salah al-Din's victory and we can say reconquest of Jerusalem for for Islam or for uh, Muslim rulers, it is absolutely one of the kind of storied tales, legends almost, of the Crusader era. And that actually is true, I would say, on both sides, the kind of Crusader side and in some ways on the Muslim side as well. So all the action goes down in 1187, uh, but the pretext for this kind of, you know, momentous uh, victory that, uh, you know, results in the Muslim reconquest of Jerusalem is is kind of a trade dispute that Salahuddin and uh, one of the crusader kings, the uh, Renaud de Châtillon of Tripoli, I believe, they had a, you know, Renaud had agreed not to attack these overland caravans, pilgrim caravans and commercial caravans. But in order to kind of fund his own expeditions, he reneges on that agreement and he does go after one of these, um, one of these caravans. And Salahuddin uses that as pretext to launch his own campaign against, against Reynolds' army. This brings about what's known as the Battle of Hattin, one of many crusader battles, but this one is kind of, has gone down in history for Salahuddin's like, really ingenious uh, military maneuvering. He lures the Crusader armies into this completely unsheltered, um, you know, first through this like narrow passageway where they wind up in like a totally unsheltered plain. Uh, The Arab armies are waiting for them. The Crusaders have no water. It's roasting hot and ultimately the kind of combination of exhaustion and heat and thirst and attack from uh, Salah Hadin's army results in a victory. And this kind of opens the way for Salah Hadin to march on Jerusalem. Uh, and this is where the story takes on its kind of legendary quality because Salah Hadin very famously, you know, he's outside the walls of Jerusalem. He's I guess, negotiating or, or, you know, calling for the city to surrender. And he promises the inhabitants of the city, regardless of religion. So any Christians of Jerusalem, all the predominantly the Christians, whether sort of crusaders themselves or um, Arab Christians who had been there before, uh, he promises them safe passage. And if they, if they surrender, if they open the, the gates of the city, um, they won't come to any harm. And ultimately, after a sort of prolonged siege or, or standoff, the Muslim armies do enter Jerusalem, and that promise is upheld. And that takes on, you know, if you think about this in the context of the Crusades and of some of the brutality on the part of the Crusader armies against populations that they encountered in the Middle East, in its context, it was seen as an extremely tolerant in modern speak act. Uh, At the time, it was kind of written about as a quote-unquote chivalrous act in the language of crusader 
ideals of knighthood and chivalry at the time. And so Saladin, I would say, I mean, Salahuddin, uh, who was known in the West as Saladin, it's at that time that he enters late medieval European literature as this kind of chivalric figure. And, you know, in a way, like, more upholding of those ideals even than of someone like Reynold de Chatillon, who, like, attacked the, the caravan, breaking that truce. Even though he was a nemesis during the Crusades, Saladin became a figure of fascination in Europe in part because of his chivalrous conduct, which, while not terribly uncommon in the history of warfare within the Islamic world, was legible within the prevailing codes of conduct and understandings of masculinity attached to medieval European politics. Here's Ibn Munqid again. Among the Franks, goddamn them, no quality is more highly esteemed in a man than military prowess. The knights have a monopoly of the positions of honor and importance among them, and no one else has any prestige in their eyes. They are the men who give counsel, pass judgment, and command the armies. On one occasion I went to law with one of them about some herds that the prince of Banias seized in a wood. This was at a time when there was a truce between us, and I was living in Damascus. I said to King Fulk, the son of Fulk, This man attacked and seized my herd. This is the season when the cows are in calf, their young died at birth, and he has returned the herd to me completely ruined. The king turned to six or seven of his knights and said, Come, give a judgment on this man's case. They retired from the audience chamber and discussed the matter until they all agreed. Then they returned to the king's presence and said, We have decided that the prince of Banias should indemnify this man for the cattle that he has ruined. The king ordered that the indemnity should be paid. But such was the pressure put on me and the courtesy shown me that, in the end, I accepted 400 dinar from the prince. Once the knights have given their judgment, neither the king nor any other commander can alter or annul it. So great influence do their knights have in their society. On this occasion, the king swore to me that he had been made very happy the day before. When I asked him what had made him happy, he said, They told me that you were a great knight, but I did not believe that you would be chivalrous. Your majesty, I replied. I am a knight of my race and my people. When a knight is tall and well-built, they admire him all the more. So it's often commented that the Crusades are a moment for plenty of intercultural exchange. It's, it's worth mentioning that there's uh, real disunity amongst the crusader states, just as there was disunity amongst the small and larger polities in the region before the crusaders arrive. It's actually the case that fairly quickly the crusaders get just kind of sucked into the local politics. And we have alliances between crusader states and local Muslim polities against other crusader states. A uh, fair bit of movement back and forth amongst the crusaders, excluding the new arrivals, a lot of adoption of local norms plenty of alliances and truces. This plays out in in the realm of warfare itself, too. The Muslims will certainly learn much from the Crusaders about their ideas for tactics and and armor, Um, but the same will be true in the other direction. Use of things like uh, counterweight catapults, trebuchets, these existed elsewhere, but certainly um, it's Muslim models that inform the Crusaders in their usage. Muslim models, too, of fortification design will have a tremendous impact on how the Crusaders will build castles both in the region 
and back home in the future. Um, Methods to make it much harder, for example, to carry a ladder up to the wall of a fortress and then just climb up it. It's kind of one of these things that you think later on is logical. Just put a kind of slope on the end of it and then you won't be able to do that. But that wasn't a thing until after the experience of the Crusades suggested that maybe you'd like to make it a little bit more difficult for somebody to climb up your wall. So there's a lot of kind of back and forth that happens here um, and exchange of tactics. Still, it's the Crusaders who will over time build heavier and heavier armor and the uh, Muslim armies that will tend to rely more on being light and to use their cavalry and their, their archers in particular to their advantage. The history of the Crusades has always had a lot to do with warfare, but it's possible to find a history of cultural encounter even within that history of warfare. When the Muslim armies encountered crusaders on the battlefield or engaged in diplomacy, they were also evaluating their counterparts in gendered terms as men who lived or did not live up to a certain code of conduct. And the crusaders were doing the same right back. There are also accounts from Arabic sources about women who fought alongside the crusaders. Imad al-Din al-Asfahani is one author who was struck by the tendency of crusader women to ride into battle wearing the same heavy armor as men did and this meant that their gender was not readily apparent on the battlefield. He mentioned a Frankish noblewoman who even showed up to the Crusades with her own army. Imaduddin marveled at these women's capacities as fighters, while also implying that the prominent role of women was an indication of weakness on the part of the Crusaders. He also mentions, by the way, that the Crusader ranks contained old women who appear as support for the Crusaders, and, at least in Imaduddin's telling, as sort of spiritual cheerleaders. So the gendered impressions of the cultural encounter with Crusaders started on the battlefield, but they didn't end there. We'll hear some more details from Imaduddin's account in just a bit, as we discuss another site of encounter between Europeans and Muslims during the Crusades. In 2012, Ottoman History Podcast interviewed Gary Leiser about his book on prostitution in the Eastern Mediterranean. His work showed that sex work was quite a normal thing in that region over the span stretching from Byzantine rule through the medieval period, and up until the rise of the Ottoman Empire during the early modern period. Uh, About 20 years ago, when I was doing research on other subjects in medieval Islamic social history, I began to come across odd references to prostitution in various sources. And on a whim, I began to collect these references. And after many years, suddenly I found myself with about 80 pages of notes on prostitution in the medieval Islamic world. Uh, It became uh, quite obvious to me that much of what was said about prostitution in this period was essentially conventional wisdom, such assertions that prostitution was the world's oldest profession or it was the worst form of exploitation of women in the Middle Ages. These assertions are based entirely on no research whatsoever. And it turns out that the institution of prostitution is somewhat more sophisticated and nuanced. People generally looked upon prostitution indifferently. I mean, it was just a normal profession for a woman. These women usually worked where men gathered, above all, large groups of men. This would be in the ports, in the, in the marketplaces, inns, taverns, the circus, and they say wherever large crowds of men were to be found. This also included fairs, uh, places of pilgrimage, uh, and holidays. Uh, one of the most uh, renowned stories of a prostitute concerns Mary of Egypt, uh, who worked in Alexandria. 
and she decided to follow a group of Christian pilgrims to Jerusalem. And so, so she sold her favors uh, to pay for her passage to Palestine and then set up shop in front of the Holy Sepulcher, uh, taking care of the needs of pilgrims. And this is a pattern that was to repeat itself also in Muslim times. The church's position on prostitution, I should say, was ambivalent. The church hated the, hated the sin but loved the sinner. Uh, and it believed that it was a necessary ill. Uh, and this goes back to St. Augustine, who held that, again, it was a necessary evil, but it was important for holding the family, that is to say, society together, and for protecting respectable women. This was a way of keeping, above all, gangs of young men from assaulting respectable women, they could turn their interests uh, elsewhere, and thus it was a way, prostitution was rationalized, I might say, as a way of protecting women. The position of Jalaluddin Rumi was exactly the same. Coming of, of Islam, uh, above all to places like Egypt and Syria, did not initially begin, make any particular change as far as I could tell in the practice of prostitution. We have to keep in mind that the majority of the population in Egypt and Syria remained Christian for about 400 years. So we, it's logical to assume that for the most part the trade continued in primarily in Christian hands and the same pattern of prostitution continued into the, the Muslim period. The Muslim rulers were only concerned with paying taxes and they weren't, didn't really care how the Christians earned their money. So it would only have been later, say 400 years or so, that the majority of the participants in the trade were non-Christian, were above all Muslims. But the pattern remained more or less the same. Some of the most vivid descriptions of the sexual marketplace in the medieval Mediterranean came out of the period of the Crusades. Women were critical members of the Crusader parties, and in fact, sex was only one part of the equation. What stands out in Syria with regard to prostitution more than any other region in the eastern Mediterranean is um, the consequences of the Crusades, in which there was a significant increase in the number of prostitutes, in this case, European prostitutes, Christian women, who came to offer their services in Syria and in Egypt. We know that they both accompanied the armies, that is to say they went overland, and, and a little bit like, I mean, it's somewhat analogous to these long-distance traders. If you're a crusader, or you take up the cross, and you know that it may take you six months to get there, and you don't know if you're going to come back alive, but you know that Camp followers, this is women who provided sexual services, many who were just outright prostitutes, were going to accompany you all the way to the Holy Land. It would help make that dangerous journey a little more tolerable. And so many women, I mean, some of them simply took the cross, some prostitutes simply took the cross, decided to accompany the troops overland. Others arrived later by ship. I mean, imagine yourself. Here's a, here's a phenomenon. In an instance in which large numbers of men, maybe tens of thousands, are, are arriving in a certain area where the number of accessible women or Christian women is 
very, very few. Business opportunities, you can see how it would be attractive, at least to some European prostitutes, to take a ship and go to the Holy Land to offer your services. And we know that this this happened. We know that when um, St. Louis, on one of his, uh, his crusades, the one to Damietta, when he pitched his camp outside the city, the right next to him, the, the girls set up their tents and did good business. Many of them, I mean, they weren't, didn't just work as prostitutes, but they, t- they tended the, the wounded, they cooked food, they did the laundry. Uh, they played an important part in the Crusades. And we have one instance in which uh, clerics, when they were trying to raise the enthusiasm for a, one of the later, uh, another one, one of the Crusades, uh, from amongst uh, the Europeans who were had settled in the Holy Land, uh, tried to recruit camp followers. It's a little bit analogous to, say, in the United States when they were building the Alaska Pipeline, or during the California Gold Rush. You hear suddenly you have large numbers of men who don't have women. In this respect, you know, business was business. And one of the medieval Islamic sources for the Crusades, Imaduddin al-Isfahani, goes so far as to say a boatload of, the, of girls just arrived. There were 300 of them. And they, so sooner I got off the boat, then they set up their tents, started to do business. He, he goes into, it's almost a kind of softcore pornography, his, his description of the girls and, 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 and how they conducted business. And he goes so far as, how, well, how did he know about this? That's one, one question that comes to mind. But he goes so far as to say, word of these women, their beauty and their skills, quickly passed across the lines and a number of Muslims learned about them. And so they sneaked over to the crusader side and, 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 and sampled the favors of these European ladies. Lizer described Imaduddin's account as almost being softcore pornography, and when I looked it up, I saw what he meant. Well, Zoe, let's see how far you can get into this before we have to <laughs> Without stop. laughing. There arrived by ship 300 lovely Frankish women, full of youth and beauty, assembled from beyond the sea and offering themselves for sin. They were expatriates come to help expatriates, ready to cheer the fallen and sustained in turn to give support and assistance, and they glowed with ardor for carnal intercourse. They were all licentious harlots, proud and scornful, who... I'm blushing. (laughs) It's juicy stuff. Yeah. They were all licentious harlots, proud and scornful, who took and gave foul-fleshed and sinful singers and coquettes appearing proudly in public, ardent and inflamed, tinted and painted, desirable and appetizing, exquisite and graceful, who ripped open and patched up, lacerated and mended, aired and ogled, urged and seduced, consoled and solicited, seductive and languid, desired and desiring, amused and amusing, versatile and cunning like tipsy adolescents, making love and selling themselves for gold, bold and ardent, loving and passionate, pink-faced and unblushing, black-eyed and bullying, calipigian and graceful with nasal voices and fleshy thighs, blue-eyed and gray-eyed, broken-down little fools. What does calipigian mean? Apparently, it means to have a fleshy rear end. Oh. And that was the word that I had to look up. 
This is amazing. Each one trailed the train of her robe behind her and bewitched the beholder with her effulgence. She swayed like a sapling, revealed herself like a strong castle, quivered like a small branch, walked proudly with a cross on her breast, sold her graces for gratitude and longed to lose her robe and her honor. They arrived after consecrating their persons as if to works, as if to works of piety and offered and prostituted the most chaste and precious among them. They said that they set out with the intention of consecrating their charms, that they did not intend to refuse themselves to bachelors, and they maintained that they could make themselves acceptable to God by no better sacrifice than this. So they set themselves up, each in a pavilion or tent erected for her use, together with other lovely young girls of their age, and opened the gates of pleasure." They dedicated as a holy offering what they kept between their thighs. They were openly licentious and devoted themselves to relaxation. They removed every obstacle to making of themselves free offerings. They plied a brisk trade in dissoluteness, adorned the patched up fissures, poured themselves into the springs of libertinage, shut themselves up in private under the amorous transports of men, offered their wares for enjoyment, invited the shameless into their embrace, mounted breasts on backs, bestowed their wares on the poor, brought their silver anklets up to touch their golden earrings, and were willingly spread out on the carpet of amorous sport. <laughs> Sorry. No, I mean... Holy shit! <laughs> Do I have to redo that because I started laughing? No, let's just keep going. They made themselves targets for men's darts. They were permitted territory for forbidden acts. They offered themselves to the lance's blows and humiliated themselves to their lovers. They put up the tent and loosed the girdle after agreement had been reached. They were the places where tent pegs are driven in. They invited swords to enter their sheaths. They raised their terrain for planting. They made javelins rise towards shields excited the plow to plow, gave the birds a place to peck with their beaks, allowed heads to enter their antechambers and raced under whoever bestrode them at the spur's blow. They took the parched man's sinews to the well. Okay, I need to jump in here because this actually keeps going for a while. Belts, engraved coins, welcomed birds into the nest of their thighs. And the accounts of the Crusades are full of this type of hyperbole with regard to violence and salacious details. But this description by Amada Dina Lesfahani is one of the most over-the-top descriptions I've seen in any historical text. What would you like? What would you tell your students about that passage? I mean, I think it says a little bit more about uh, Amada Dina, perhaps, than it does about the women who accompanied the crusaders on their quests. But it certainly makes for good reading. It's like an encyclopedia of, of euphemisms for things that men would like to imagine that women would do for them. He probably worked harder on that section <laughs> of his history than any other section. I mean, it's poetry, honestly, the way that it reads... 
This passage from Imad ad-Din al-Asfahani's writings on the Crusades is a textbook example of what we might call a gendered portrayal of conflict. While scholars can certainly use such sources as a window onto social life during the Crusades, this portrayal is clearly intended to reflect poorly on the Crusaders, and says more about gender relations and women specifically as a vehicle for achieving that negative portrayal. It also reveals that a lot of people involved in the Crusades weren't necessarily there for crusading at all. One way to think about the Crusades and and their role in sort of this like this broader intellectual setting is to think of the way that we have area studies departments today, right? Like Russian studies or Middle Eastern studies. These departments and these kind these fields of area studies partly developed out of American political interest. But the unintended or not perhaps the the flip side of that is then you then encourage the more humanistic literary pursuit of these fields of study. Marian Patton and I discussed some other figures for whom the Crusades represented an opportunity to benefit professionally, in this case, from the high level of scholarship in the Islamic world. My takeaway was about not viewing the Crusades as this unidirectional, you know, Christians versus Muslims, holy war, purely political religious conflict, and rather to view it in broader terms, or at least to view it as an event which led to perhaps somewhat unintended effects through the role of certain scholars and individuals who, you know, weren't interested in crusading, but rather saw what happened after the crusades as an opportunity to travel to a part of the world where they knew, hey, I can go and get Arabic manuscripts, which I've always wanted because they've always wanted to have access to these Arabic manuscripts and the the link that those had with the classical past. These sites are already understood to be very intellectually active settings, which is why when a Frankish presence is established somewhat permanently, scholars in other parts of Europe already know to go that they want to go to places like Antioch to learn Arabic or to get Arabic manuscripts or to get Greek manuscripts. It just makes these crusader states, in particular Antioch, more accessible as a place for scholars in Europe who are already part of this, the translation movement's already kind of going on. And then with the crusades, you get another intellectual setting in which that can flourish even further. So Antioch is really the one in particular that, that's worth discussing as, as a site of intellectual activity. There's still a lot of research that needs to be done about scholars who gained access to the manuscripts that were then later translated into Latin via Antioch. And so Charles Burnett is one of these scholars who has helped to uncover how scholars we already knew about who were active in the translations, translation period, translation movement, sorry. There is a, a significant amount of primary literature that kind of paints a picture of Antioch as a city where Christians and Muslims, less so Jews compared to Andalusia, but in particular Christians, both Eastern and Western Christians and Muslims kind of living together in somewhat peaceful settings. One of the Europeans believed to have visited the Crusader states in search of knowledge was Adelard of Bath. We heard a quote from him in the previous episode of this series, in which he expressed the view that an idea carried more weight if attributed to a Muslim thinker. So Adelard of Bath is another significant figure in the Arabic-Latin translation movement, best known for his translation of Euclid's Elements. 
and the evidence suggests he was present in Antioch. Um, we have some scattered references to figures who kind of fit his description by other scholars, and so people like Charles Burnett, who I've mentioned a few times now, um, find it very credible that Adelard was also spending time in Antioch. Um, and like I said, he, he's from England, so he's, he, he's, this man has traveled, you know, across the entire continent, and he travels down and he travels back. He travels widely. I think the whole itinerantness of, of the scholarly efforts or productions in this time period is another part of the story that, that could be further developed. Just the idea of, of knowledge being so mobile and, and books and manuscripts being so mobile in the sense that you can literally pick it up and take it with you wherever you go. And so in a way, books and these scholars who travel around translating them are a great way of kind of testing this, you know, some of the ideas of global history and whether we can t- we can call the medieval period, you know, a global one. Um, it really kind of tests the limits of that of that conversation because we have so many, you know, instances of scholars who are doing exactly that, who are who are traveling to get manuscripts translating them, sometimes in courts of rulers, and taking them with them where they go. The case of Adelard Bath is really interesting because he uses his translations uh, from Arabic as, as his CV, basically, to get, to get a job. One of the most important works to come into European languages via the Crusades is a text known as the El Majest by Ptolemy, a second-century scholar from Alexandria. Ptolemy's El Majest was probably the most significant astronomical and cosmological text for the history of Western astronomy. And I, I, I mean Western not in the sense of European, but in the sense of like not Eastern Asian, not Chinese. And the name Almagest that we use in English today comes from the Arabic title for it, Almagesti, so like the, the great compendium, the great, the great text. And it basically outlines, you know, the basic structure of the cosmos, the eight celestial spheres, the planets that occupy each sphere, the way the planets and the stars are meant to move, which is in in perfect circles. It was the book, it was the textbook on understanding the cosmos, which is one of the most important fields of study. Mathematics was the basis of astronomy, but astronomy was the basis of all kinds of, of matters relevant both to rulers and to average citizens, you know, doctors and medicine. Medicine was closely related to astronomy um, in the sense that people believed the stars and the planets affected life on Earth, and so to understand better what was happening to you, what was happening to your body, you need to understand the cosmos. Rulers were obviously interested in sort of prognostication and being able to predict or somewhat predict, you know, the movements of the heavens as an extension of their both earthly and heavenly authority. As a field of study, it was far more significant than we think of it today. And so a book like Ptolemy's Almagest was a bestseller in that sense. And then you have lots of different versions of, of sort of recensions and summaries that, you know, come later to try and simplify it because it was taught in universities. And it was one of the first sort of subjects you you got into if you, if you joined a Latin school and were, you know, on the road to become a lawyer or uh, a priest, you know. It was sort of still part of your basic core curriculum. And at the core, obviously, of, of the Ptolemaic cosmology is this idea that the Earth is at the center of the universe. And, you know, I don't, it's a bit anachronistic to say, oh, it was so important because it lasted, you know, it, it, it was salient until the 17th century, right? That's a bit of a retroactive argument, but it re- it's true. It's true that Ptolemy's cosmology, as outlined in the Almagest and other texts that were eventually added to it, as a system, was the dominant 
philosophy or theory about how the universe was structured until well into the 17th century. Historians believe that the Almagest was first translated by an Italian scholar known as Stephen of Pisa, but also sometimes known as Stephen of Antioch. The first translation of Ptolemy's Almagest into Latin was through Stephen of Pisa through the time that he spent in Antioch. And the excapits in his manuscripts also point to a number of different individuals, individuals whose names we have, but we can't really identify who exactly they were. Um, and they speak to this kind of active scholarly community, or at least a sense of collaboration and cooperation between people who would get manuscripts for those who are seeking them. So local residents or scholars who knew the book markets would would help these visitors like Stephen of Pisa to get access to these manuscripts and then translate them. And, and then Stephen of Pisa would then take them with him. And a lot of these manuscripts are, you know, are still extant in European libraries today. It wasn't sort of uncommon for Christians from Western Europe to travel to Jerusalem or further afield and then end up staying there. And that's why there's still a Christian presence in Jerusalem today, um, at least some of the Christians there today um, who, who date to the Crusades. And the, the space, I think the importance of space and Jerusalem as a space, like a holy space that's sort of shared amongst the Abrahamic faiths, you know, there is there is something significant in that. And so I don't mean to sort of diminish the Crusades as like a, you know, kumbaya, everyone gets along now, because that's definitely not, not the case. But in certain ways, this kind of political conflict eventually leads to sort of intellectual contacts and cultural cultural encounters, which in sort of the long durée sense means that a scholar from England like Adelard of Bath knows, I want to learn Arabic, where can I go? Hmm, let's go to Jerusalem where there are also Christians and I can sort of settle there, you know, and, and do my thing and learn Arabic, get some manuscripts, um, get some Greek manuscripts, have them translated, and then carry on my way. Like that kind of awareness of cities like Jerusalem and Antioch representing that kind of community and that was and that being known in different parts of Europe far afield from Jerusalem I think is a pretty significant moment in in the history of, of this part of the world. The other thing lurking in the background of the Crusades and like the Crusader encounters with the East isn't just this you know Christian versus Muslim but Christian and other Christians. That's another really important element of the story because the Latin Crusader movement is another example of sort of coming to grips with this differing sense of Christianity in the East, which is pretty significant when we talk about the Fourth Crusade, where the Latins sacked Constantinople and didn't even go, they, they, they got to Constantinople, they said, ah, you know, we've, we've gone far enough, let's just stop here and, and sack Constantinople because... Greek Orthodox Christians weren't necessarily seen as totally within the faith, let's just say. There are numerous ways in which the Crusades were not necessarily an epic battle between Islam and Christendom. What we call the Crusades was a whole set of messy encounters, often violent, but not always about holy war as such. Yet it's that dimension that has fascinated modern audiences. Alongside the 1935 film The Crusades, we have Ridley Scott's 2005 Kingdom of Heaven. 
It dramatized the historical events of the Crusades on a budget of more than $100 million. And the film actually performed better outside the U.S. than within it, including in Arab countries such as Egypt. This film about the Crusades was inextricable from the context of the U.S. war on terror, especially the invasion of Iraq in 2003. We'll conclude this episode by discussing another depiction of the Crusades that had a big reception in the Arab world, a film by Egyptian director Yusuf Shaheen entitled Anasir Salahuddin or Saladin the Victorious. Released in 1963, it was based on a novel by famed Egyptian author Naguib Mahfouz. I've seen it a couple times, but it made more sense to me after seeing the old Black and White Crusades movie from 1935. That film certainly informed the aesthetic of Shaheen's three-hour epic, which features some pretty unforgettable scenes of Egyptian actors portraying crusader kings and soldiers. I think we can also see it as a cinematic response to Western portrayals of the Crusades, offering a new Arab perspective on how the Crusades played out, in a time period in which the figure of Salahuddin as a Muslim or Arab nationalist hero was really resonating. Salahuddin actually begins to be resurrected first as a sort of, we can't call it a nationalist figure, but as a kind of figure of Muslim anti-imperialist resistance uh, during the late Ottoman period. So under, I think, Abdul Hamid II was the first leader in the Middle East to uh, invoke Salahuddin's triumphs as a sort of, you know, the glory of Islam, the glory of uh, Muslim unity. Namik Kamal wrote the first Muslim biography of Salahuddin in um, 1872. Um, but he really enters, I would say, sort of Arab nationalist consciousness uh, first during the Arab Nahda, the like reawakening of Arabic literature and language um, and a sort of early national pan-Arab nationalist movement in the late 19th century. But yes, absolutely the high point of Salahuddin kind of symbolism comes in the Arab world after, during the early years of the Cold War and for two, I think, pretty significant and like obvious reasons. Uh, one of those is, you know, the need among several Arab leaders, uh, we can look specifically at uh, Hafez al-Assad in Syria, uh, Saddam Hussein actually in Iraq, and uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, most kind of prominently in Egypt, uh, all for different reasons, wanted to uphold a kind of language of Arab unity, a non-religious form of kind of, not even of Arab unity, really of a kind of regional, you know, together we are stronger than if we are divided, this, this sort of language. And this was in an anti-colonial or post-colonial context of vying for leadership in a part of the world that was very recently kind of, you know, out of the shackles of direct or indirect imperialism. And then the second major reason, which is attached, you know, a sort of offshoot of the first, uh, is the foundation of the state of Israel in 1948. And so this idea, ideal of the liberation of Jerusalem for the Muslims or for the Arabs, uh, you know, and in this uh, in this case, very thinly veiled, like for the Palestinians, that legacy of Salahuddin is taken up by again, I would say first and most strongly by Gamal Abdel Nasser, but then by other leaders in the area in a very literal way, like a very sort of close parallel <laughs> to expel these 
perceived or so-called imperialist invaders from the Holy Land, from Jerusalem. In my class at UVA, we discussed Saladin the Victorious not only to gain a perspective on the memory of the Crusades in the modern Islamic world, but also as an example of how historical memory interacts with political context. 1963, this is shortly after the Suez Crisis, Gamal Abdel Nasser, you know, at this time, Egypt under Gamal Abdel Nasser is the kind of unquestioned heart, beating heart of the Arab world. Culturally, you know, Egyptian film and cinema and television are sort of exported throughout the Arabic-speaking world. Uh, and Yusuf Shaheen was one of the major directors at that time. Gamal Abdel Nasser is really kind of riding high uh, from the Suez Crisis, from his victory in nationalizing the Suez Canal, taking on the armies of Britain, France, and Israel in 1956. Um, and so this, this film, as, you know, as you'll see from even the first kind of opening scenes, is, a, is really a kind of call or, a, yeah, a rallying cry to liberate the desperate masses of Jerusalem. The Christian crusader rulers are not portrayed in a sympathetic way, and the parallel is pretty, is pretty clear. Which is why one of the, like, the crusades kind of loom large in European historiography, and they simply don't for the medieval Islamic historiography, because it doesn't matter that much. It just doesn't. It's a blip. And it's worth noting that a little over a century after Salahuddin reconquers Jerusalem following his victory in 1187, the Horn Sahatin, one of his descendants gives Jerusalem to the Holy Roman Emperor. Just gives it to him. Says, yeah, sure. Not an ounce of blood spilled in that moment. Just says, yeah, you can have it. A little bit more complicated than that, but only, only, only just. So, I mean, uh, you could quote... Um, Hassan Mahmoud and Kingdom of Heaven, an otherwise terrible movie, giving really the most memorable line in it at the end, where Orlando Bloom's character asks him, what's Jerusalem? And Hassan Mahmoud says, as Lahadin, nothing. Takes a step, turns around, and says, everything. As popular as they are today, the Crusades were largely a blip in the history of the Islamic world writ large. However, in our next installment of The Making of the Islamic World, we're looking at another invasion, this time from the East, that was not only a watershed moment in the history of Islam, but indeed one of the most important events in the making of the modern world. We'll discuss the Mongol invasions of the 13th century and their impacts, both during the initial invasions as well as in subsequent centuries, when the descendants of the destroyers of Baghdad became Islamic rulers in their own right. This culminated in the rise of a figure known to history as Tamerlan, who built an empire centered on modern-day Afghanistan. I'm Chris Grayton. Thanks for listening to this sixth installment of The Making of the Islamic World. That's all for now, but remember to visit the Ottoman History Podcast website for other episodes in this series and more materials related to this one. So long for now.